and implementation all together. And this is the start of our good. <laughs> that we could start with values after the introduction, start the, this workshop by <coughs> taking a moment for you all, not only for this, but this is the last thing that happens on this conference, to connect with uh, your own values and the value of this work. So I'd like to invite you to, if you want to, let all your papers rest for a while and uh, sit as comfortably as you can. <coughs> if you if you want to close your eyes and sit and, and take that that you can do that. <coughs> if you want to keep your eyes open, do that. I'd like for you to, if you're willing, to take a couple of deep breaths and uh, Just connect, start by connecting with your breathing. The way that you breathe in and the way that you breathe out. And let this moment that we have right here and now, let the moment that you have right here and now, to be about the value of this work and what you have experienced during this conference. The value of being a human being. It's possible for you to now connect with your values and what your values are related to in act what this means to you. The quality of it. And let you do that for a while to reflect on this time that you've had. To reflect on values by yourself for about half a minute, in silence, beginning now. you're connecting with your values and the value of this work and your relationship with it, I'd like you to ask you questions. If you would 
take a step when you slide up this webcam and into the normal mind that will be in line with your values. Your values say to of this work. What would be a step that you would be willing to take in that direction? A step that might be big or small. It's up to you. It will be a step that you will be willing to take when you go home in line with the value sets that you have been exploring during this conference. So if I could put an answer, if it's possible for just letting the answer come to you. exercise and I'd like you to take the time that you need to end it and when you open up your eyes again you will be back in this room and you can bring out a piece of paper and write down the steps that you're willing to take in that value direction bring with you home from here in the time that you take the time that you need Choosing. Right? It's, it's a choice to move forward. 
Like I bet if you look at your papers, there are things on there that you know, your mind might say is not possible or may not come out right or you're not quite sure how you'll do it. But so it's about choosing to take that step anyway. And each and every step we take is a matter of choice. And, and it's not about what our mind has to say about it. So I'm sure we all had that experience as we wrote it down, just as a way to kind of orient us to what our clients struggle with and what we, we struggle with in our own lives very often. Um, and in terms of the value of work, when we sat down to write the book, we, we wanted to think through um, what were some of the purposes of doing values work with clients. Um, and so we came up with this, this little list. It's by no means inclusive of everything, but it's sort of what mattered to us when we wrote it. Um, helping clients clearly define what matters to them, and not necessarily entirely in a verbal sense, um, but also to create a sense of meaning and purpose. Like, where, where am I going in life? What is my life sort of, what's the meaning of life all about? Why are we here? Are we just spiraling sequences of DNA or is there some kind of purpose that we want to bring to our lives? Um, and it also can provide a therapeutic framework for setting specific goals in both the short term and the long term, both in therapy and after therapy is over and your client is going off and living their life um, on their own. Providing a context in which a client may be more willing to experience difficult thoughts and feelings as she moves in valued directions. So it basically dignifies the work of acceptance that might be very difficult and painful in the moment. Um, and helping clients practice becoming more aware of the reinforcing qualities of behaviors in the moment that are related to a larger value. And in just a moment, Ian will talk about the RFT definitions and explanations of how that process might be working. Um, so just situating our approach to values, um, you know, values is from the perspective of ACT, but that's situated, um, related to a science of language and cognition based on basic theory, which is within behavior analysis at large, which is based on a philosophy of science of functional contextualism. We're all probably having flashbacks to Steve Hayes' talks in the plenaries, um, with um, an emphasis on context and goals, the whole act situated and having a priori goals before you begin. So basically, that takes us to how we start from sort of within behavior analysis, where our RFT comes from, and how we then get to values within ACT. So I will let Ian take it away. Okay. So uh, yeah, so I'm gonna maybe give a bit of background um, as regards the kind of scientific uh, approach to values. Um, first of all, starting with behavior analysis, and then kind of looking at um, RFT, and kind of really kind of um, brief enough kind of uh, background. So the traditional approach to values then I suppose essentially is based on reinforcement. Values are kind of reinforcers for us. Um, you know, so what, what are reinforcers? And it's kind of positive reinforcement really that we're talking about. So what are some basic reinforcers? Okay, things like primary reinforcers include things like um, food, uh, sex, sleep. And these are kind of, these are important. Uh, and then from there, you've also got what are known as conditioned reinforcers. So these are um, stimuli, I suppose, that would be associated with the primary reinforcers, and through that association, that conditioned association, things like uh, affection, money, grades, social status, they become reinforcing as well. So that's kind of the, the more traditional approach to some extent. And that's the perfect place to just add, because we're talking. I wonder, did, can you hear us up there? 
it's, it's perfect, it's good. Okay, great. Great. Okay. It's your Irish voice that's really getting yeah. yeah. there. That's right. Okay. Most people complain that uh, speaking too loudly will prevent you. Because <laughs> <laughs> this is maybe the, the proper place for me to speak. So yeah, so this is the more traditional behavior analytic. And um, as I said, it's, it's, you know, it seems like a good place to start, seems to, to make a certain amount of sense. Um, but arguably, you could say it's maybe relatively simplistic. I mean, we're talking about things like you know, primary reinforcers, food, sex, sleep. Conditioned reinforcers, okay, yes, that, that makes sense. You know, um, affection or money or grades or things that are associated. But when we're talking about values here, we're talking about kind of quite abstract kind of things, you know, um, kind of religious or freedom or things like that that are really, really quite complex. Um, and so, you know, trying to explain that and how that somehow is conditioned, that we come to have these highly abstract, uh, you know, values, um, really this kind of uh, approach maybe is a bit simplistic. It's difficult to account for uh, values using this approach, arguably. Certainly not enough detail about how conditioning works. You know, it's one thing to say that, okay, they're the primary reinforcers, and then somehow lots of other things get conditioned to the primary reinforcers. Okay, yeah, that makes sense in kind of an abstract way, but then when you try to actually work out how that actually happens, it's, 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 you know, you kind of, uh, you get lost. So it's, it's not really, not really um, providing enough detail. Um, it's difficult to say how at least some abstract kind of high-level values, for example, world peace, might function as reinforcers. Who's ever achieved that in a sense? So, you know, reinforcers usually are provided contingent on behavior. And then and, and on that basis, you see an increase uh, in, the, in the behavior. But, uh, you know, who's, who's been reinforced by world peace recently? Who never actually you know, <laughs> uh, seen that? that? That'd be nice. <coughs> hasn't happened too often. Um, and yet, people profess that world peace is a value, for example. It might be something very important to them. Um, so, how does that come to happen? Um, and you know, there's also the fact that, well, some of the most powerful reinforcers su uh, suggested, basically, uh, you know, things like money, for example, might be antithetical to some of the things we talked about values. So again, bit, bit simplistic to just say that money, you know, somehow money is a reinforcer, is a condition reinforcer. Would we say it's, it's a value? Um, maybe, maybe not. You know, it sometimes can be something that people kind of go after and what we might describe as more genuine values, more satisfying or vitalizing values get lost. So it's a bit simplistic then maybe to arguably talk about just primary and conditioned uh, reinforcers. So relational frame theory then hopefully can provide a language at least to allow us to think about a more sophisticated account of, of values. Uh, and it does this by taking verbal behavior into account. That can make a, a huge difference. Um, now, you know, from this perspective then, this is kind of a definition that kind of a relatively recent definition that's been provided of values. Um, so we're, we're talking, and it's kind of a bit of a mouthful, obviously, but we'll kind of try and walk through it. Uh, so values are freely chosen, verbally constructed consequences of ongoing, dynamic, evolving patterns of activity, which establish predominant reinforcers to that activity that are intrinsic in engagement in the value behavior pattern itself. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> Once you repeat that, that three times fast. <laughs> Good one. So we're going to look at look at that. We we'll look at that in a bit. Now, um, we're going to come back, and as I say, that's a kind of a, an RHP definition or approach. But let's just say a little bit about RHP before we actually start to kind of walk through that. 
Uh, RFT explains language as the learned ability essentially to respond in accordance with abstract relations. So RFT is about suggest that's the core of RFT. We learn to relate. Um, so for example, okay, if I say to you, Mr. A is taller than Mr. B, who's shorter than Mr. A or Mr. B? And uh, please don't mention Mr. C. He's not going to be coming into this picture just yet. So Mr. A is taller than Mr. B. So who's shorter, Mr. A or Mr. B? So Mr. B, presumably. Mr. B, you say? But how do you know? I didn't tell you. You are basically responding to textual cues. You're responding to cues like taller and shorter, basically, that you have a lot of familiarity with, that you have learned to respond to. So when I tell you that Mr. A is taller than Mr. B, well, it's almost immediately obvious to you that Mr. B is shorter. And that's what we've learned. That's something we learned to do. Your relational framing accords with comparisons. So relational framing, this is the classic theory, basically three characteristics, mutual entailment, combinatorial entailment, and transformation of function. These are what kind of characterize relational frames. Uh, mutual entailment, so Mr. if Mr. A is greater than Mr. B, that means that Mr. B is less than Mr. A. Combinatorial entailment, which we're all very fond of. Um, Mr. A is greater than Mr. B, and Mr. B is greater than Mr. C. That means that Mr. A is greater than Mr. C, and Mr. C is less than Mr. A. So there, you can actually combine relations. So a mutual entailment, you give it a relation, you can derive uh, you can derive a mutually entailed relation. Combinatorial entailment, you're given two relations, and you combine them into a third relation. And then there's transformation of function, which is the kind of the, the aspect of the, the kind of relational framing, um, I suppose, pattern that's very, very important in terms of um, our you know, controlling behavior and our, our psychological adjustment to, to the environment and the, the, the effect that language can have on us. So transformation of function. Miss D finds tall men to turn on. <laughs> she likes Mr. S Mr. C because he's pretty tall. So the question is then, how might she react to Mr. A? <laughs> she likes Mr. C, she's really going to like Mr. A. Mr. A. So this is transformation function, basically. It's just uh, the response to one element uh, is transformed in, in, in the relation, is transformed based on the relation with other elements. Um, and so essentially, this is kind of relatively simple as I say it, but extremely powerful given the number of relations and so on in our relational network <coughs> and the, the variety, the vast variety. And this really is what makes language so powerful from an RFP point of view. And this, of course, is what, when we add that into that kind of basic conception of, uh, say, for example, things like reinforcers, that can utterly transform and kind of create much more the kind of, you know, um, sophisticated, abstract kind of environment, if you like, that we much more of what we might mean when we talk about things like values. Um, now, of course, we, so we've already considered comparison, but as I said, there are lots and lots of different patterns of relations, sameness, comparison, different opposition, and it gets very, very complex, you know, temporal, diectic, and logical, hierarchical. We've heard a lot about many of these over the course of the, the, conference, the conference. So we humans then learn to relationally frame, and this changes everything. I mean, this really is something that separates us essentially from um, non-verbal animals. We're verbal animals, and that can transform our entire environment. I mean, relational, through relational frames, we derive relations that transform the functions of stimuli, and as I say, we react differently to our environment. I mean, look at what we're surrounded by. I mean, this, this is the result of relational framing. 
from an RFP perspective, all of this technology and so on. We, we can think about things and plan and, and come up with incredibly clever ideas. I mean, this workshop obviously being at the forefront of the list, naturally <laughs> enough. Um, so, so incredible and um, some important features of relational framing uh, that are important with respect to ACT. So basically we've got things like bidirectional stimulus relations. Okay, so this is the fact that, again, we can, we can relationally frame with regard to stimuli and transforming the functions. We can think about our past. We can imagine our future. And when we do that, we're actually affected. So, for example, I can think of um, my death. And that, you know, in a sense, I, I'm kind of putting myself in a relation with death, with not existing anymore. And that's going to transform functions for me, emotional functions, for example, possibly. Um, or I can think about a bright, you know, uh, incredibly bright future, for example. Again, that's going to transform functions. So, again, this idea of bidirectional stimulus relations, that, you know, with words in, in relations with uh, aspects of the environment and so on, and when we think about something, we really can experience some of the functions of those things. This is something that, as I say, it really is, is unique to language. Um, relational coherence, when we learn relational framing. So these are, these are some kind of really important ideas as regards to you know, clinical issues. So relational coherence is very important, and this is something that will come up specifically, again, in relation to values and, and what maintains value. Um, but relational coherence is something that's important to us. We learn um, uh, to derive relations in a kind of coherent fashion, but we're also, we get a lot of reinforcement for basically for, for deriving relations coherently, for actually getting the right answer, for things making sense. Um, and that can be good and it can be bad. Of course, it can be good in that it gives us, say, the technology we're surrounded by. We're able to figure things out. We're able to really organize you know, things. Again, a bit like this conference, for example, really well organized and everything. You know, very, very complex, but we can do it. And it can also be bad, of course, um, to be stuck on relational coherence, that things have to be right. It all has to kind of fit together, if you like. Um, so again, this is, this is an important thing, and this is something that RFP talks about in terms of relational frames and the fact that we, we, are, we do re receive reinforcement then for, for doing this, for behaving and relating coherently. If a young child contradicts themselves or comes up to a completely incoherent relation, they usually get some kind of uh, consequence, basically, for that. Um, and so we learn to, be, to, uh, to think and to relate coherently, and it becomes very reinforcing for us. Uh, rules and rule governed behavior. Again, this is something that's involved, very important in terms of values. As we'll see, the definition of values, values are defined in terms of augmentals, motivated augmentals. Um, there are other kinds of rules as well that we learn, clients and tracking. But augmentals, we'll be coming back to that in terms of the definition. Self rules, we can have strategic and valued rules. We learn rules basically are patterns, uh, networks of relations that we learn uh, that can transform our environment. Um, strategic rules, planning, say for example, on how to, you know, what time to get up and so on in the morning or to get to work and, and kind of short term maybe plans and so on. Valuative though, more relevant to what we're doing now. So uh, self rules about what should I do with my life, for example. Okay, so I, I should do this or I should do that in a sense. And that, so that's a different type of rule. Um, but again, this is something that kind of RFT talks about. And then we also explain the idea of motivative augmental rules. So RFT, we'll come back to that. That's, that's really how RFT defines uh, values, motivative augmentals. Uh, and we'll kind of come back to that. But it's the idea that there are rules that can in temporarily increase the reinforcing quality of, of um, stimuli and make us more likely to try to behave in accord uh, uh, with
with the rule in order to try and <coughs> achieve that value, so or achieve that reinforcer. Just as a, an, an insert, um, this is kind of how we worked when we wrote the book. Is that you know, if you click back a mm -hmm. second, lest you feel like this was overwhelming technical talk, every single point here underneath the important feature, the relational framing, can be directly related to our clients, right? Just think of a moment of, of how a client who's had a pretty traumatic experience or difficult experience that um, there's a, there's a bi-directional relation between sort of talking about it and the same kinds of feelings, the transformation of stimulus function that happens. So talking about the event can be just as aversive as the event was itself, possibly even more so later on with time. And that doesn't happen in animals. This is purely a verbal process. Relational coherence. How many of our clients have said, I just want to understand how I got here and how things are so messed up so that I can figure it out, fix it, and move on. Right? So relational coherence is really powerful. Um, the rules that we, we use, there's all sorts of different kinds of rules that are more or less vital. Um, so, so all of these can directly relate to the clinical work that we're doing. And we're hoping that by you listening to this kind of talk that you might start to think that if this is of interest to you, how knowing about this might sort of help organize your thinking when you're talking to your clients. I mean, this is directly related to sitting across from a person. It's not just, you know, stuff in a book. So. So yeah, kind of slightly technical, I suppose, in a sense, but really but in terms of, <laughs> just, a, just a bit, right? but, but certainly, yeah, it's, it's a very, very useful way to actually think about, um, about therapy and um, some of the situations that, that occur. And I think, yeah, that's, that's, again, something that harks back to Steve's talk, Steve's talk as well. You know, to maybe think in terms of, of RFT and can, can sometimes help you kind of get a new perspective maybe on what's actually happening. Um, but these are, some, these are some of the features actually that we talk about in the book that kind of almost provide a platform as well that we can kind of come back. They're kind of, we familiarize you with the ideas and then we can kind of come back later having kind of introduced them and talk a bit about them in order to explain what we mean maybe in, in RFT terms and relate it back. Um, so as regards values in RFT then, so just having kind of maybe provided some of those elements that as I say, they are kind of, some of those are useful in understanding what's involved in valuing. Um, two key elements then in uh, values in RFT. First of all, there's the idea of motivated augmenting, which I'll kind of explain. And then secondly, our hierarchical relational network. So <coughs> those are two te technical approaches that are two technical items that you know, we kind of explain um, and uh, are kind of useful in terms of understanding this concept. So I'm going to just look at those two, just give you some idea of what we mean by those two. Okay, so first of all, motivated augmenting. What do we mean by that? This really is the RFT kind of approach. This is the RFT translation for uh, valuing. Uh, in traditional empirical work with animals then, because uh, as I say, this approach, the RFT approach has its roots in behavior analysis. In traditional behavioral work with animals, basically pre-session exposure to stimuli that share perceptual functions um, seems to increase the reinforcing effectiveness of those stimuli. So in other words, if you expose an animal to some a number of different kinds of reinforcing items, um, that, that can actually increase the reinforcing value of those items then. They, they'll increase their value as actual consequences. Um, so that's just a, that's, that's an effect that seems to, to happen. This exposure then, may what the way it works is it kind of presents some of the stimulus functions as a consequence of an event. You know, for example, the way it smells or, or texture, aroma or whatever. And this is kind of, this is a, a, a behavior analytic conception of non-verbal motivation then. Kind of simple motivation. You're you're making these reinforcers more mo more mo motivating, basically, for the animal. 
Um, so this is non-verbal, of course. Just by exposing them to these, you're making them more mo motivated in comparison to, say, possible reinforcers that they haven't actually seen in that session. Now, motivated augmenting them, according to RP, is the verbal counterpart of that. That's a kind of a bit what valuing is like. The verbal counterpart of reinforcer sampling, it works by presenting some of the sensory or perceptual functions have a consequence via derived relation. That's when we talk about values, that's kind of what we're doing. When we're, ta we're talking, we're using, I'm using words, I'm saying things like, imagine your values, imagine what you really, really value. And you might think basically about, okay, something that's really, really important to you. But that's all verbal, your relation, you're deriving relations there. But in a sense, what you're doing is you're coming in contact verbally with what's important to you. And that, just that kind of exposure, that verbal exposure to what's important to you, might be enough to temporarily, at least, increase the reinforcing effect and make you more likely to respond towards that. So the idea that we bring in values, we talk about values, how important they are, you know, there's exercises where the scientists actually think about their values, what's really important to them. That's kind of, you know, making it more likely that they might actually do things, respond in ways that will bring them in, in contact, more in contact with those values. And that's essentially what this is, motivated augmenting. And the cool part about this piece of, of valuing from an RFT perspective is think about this. How many of us have values that we will probably never see happen in our lives? Like uh, about moving towards something that probably will never happen. Right, so why would that be possible? It could not be possible without RFT because for reinforcement to work, we need a consequence. So RFT, this, this augmenting piece, provides a consequence in the moment that will maintain behavior in that direction even if we never come in contact with it, which is really cool when you think about it. Otherwise, how would human society progress? Why would we work towards world peace? Why would we work towards an environment that might be more healthier? Why would we work towards health behaviors when we don't see the consequence of that? So it's very cool that we can have these pieces and move towards things we may never see simply by this verbal process. Really cool. Yeah, I just said this is the this is really the power of verbal behavior. Again, that we can bring these very abstract, um, you know, possible reinforcing uh, these verbal networks to bear, and the person can respond to them. And as I say, some of these are very highly abstract things we might never even kind of um, uh, realize in our lifetimes, like in a completely clean environment, for example, very important to people. But I mean, again, most people will never see that in a sense. Um, but still, still they work towards it. So it's this idea, and this is something, of course, that, that takes us way out of the realm of kind of simple processes of reinforcement. So again, so just a kind of an example. Imagine it's late in the evening, you've been working hard all day. Someone mentions that they're looking forward to going home and having some pizza. Now this is a kind of simple example. This is not necessarily a highly abstract value or anything, but this is a motivated augmented. Um, someone mentions they're going, uh, they're looking forward to going home and having some pizza, and then you remind yourself, oh yeah, that's a great idea, and that you can stop into that new pizza place on your way home. This is a motivator of mental. You you haven't actually sampled pizza itself or come in contact with or seen it. You've verbally had the idea of pizza uh, introduced to you in a sense. You've been exposed to that verbally, and suddenly now you think, oh yeah, that's a great idea. I think I'll go and get some pizza. Whereas. So it's not the, I mean, the pizza was always available anyway. It's not a spiritual stimulus in a sense. It was always available, but it's kind of just exposure to it verbally makes it more likely now that you're going to go and, and buy some pizza. Now that's a very, that's a simple analog of what we mean then by values. 
And value is obviously much, much more complex very often than that. But that's a simple analog of this verbal motivation idea. So you were verbally exposed to pizza, and that verbal <coughs> exposure makes pizza more motivating, such, such that now you're making plans to get them and licking your lips in anticipation. Now, clinical example. Um, client is in an act session expressing doubts about her ability to spend time away from, um, sorry, her always changed sex as well, mid-sentence. Um, <laughs> that's how flexible we are. That's very, very flexible. She's expressing doubts about the ability to spend time away from this hectic job. Uh, the therapist asks him to think about what he has said before about the importance of his family. The client reflects on this and resolves to take time off. Now, things may not all happen as simply as that, but that's, that's the, the kind of general direction we're going in. So it's, it's this idea then, you know, in, you know, it can be more complex than that, it can happen over a longer term than that, but it's the idea of exposing somebody again verbally to this idea of what's important to you. So this again is a motivated for mental. The client is verbally exposed to the idea of family, reminded, if you like, about the importance of family. What they've said already previously, maybe, in a previous session. Remember what you said about how important it was. Um, and that verbal exposure increases motivation to do what's needed. Okay, so that's, that's one key core idea. That really is the core of the idea, motivated by mentioning. And something else that's very, very cool, actually, is, the, is that uh, there's a 2008 article now in the Psychological Record that actually has kind of provided a very, very nice empirical example of that. So again, anybody interested in kind of delving into the empirical literature, uh, Jewen Hayes, 2008, uh, psychological record, as I say, is a, is a really nice uh, model. So that's, that's motivated augmenting from an RFT perspective. Then the other element that we're going to be talking about is hierarchical relations. So again, that values often involve hierarchical relations. There are things at the top of the hierarchy, the values hierarchy, the things that we're not going to have to justify. But then there are goals and, and you know, avenues towards those really important values, things that allow us to get there, if you like. Um, and they, you know, they, they, they are there. The, the higher values, the really ultimate values, justify those things, those goals, sub-goals and so on. So again, maybe there might be things like particular hobbies or you know, art or creativity, uh, things like maybe self-worth or family life. These might be quite high in our ranking, basically. These might be really high values. They then justify other things that we do. Those other things are not ends in themselves, uh, but we do them with, with those values basically in mind. And this is a hierarchical relation. <coughs> so in other words, these things, these goals um, help um, or you know, uh, kind of allow us to live in accord with, with our values. And sometimes you know, they, they can be very, very positive things. Sometimes you can maybe there can be kind of conflicts. So for example, somebody might work hard, very hard for promotion, but in fact, that might actually take time away from something that really matters to them. But again, that's, there's a case of kind of balance. The, the, the key idea, though, is this idea of a hierarchy, that there are really, really important, very, very important um, core values, and that these provide justification. And they are not themselves justified. They're chosen. But that they then kind of um, justify other things that we do to actually get to those values. Uh, an example that I mentioned at the kind of pain, uh, I had a... Um, <coughs> A young professional soccer player who came in and uh, he had his foot his soccer playing soccer was his whole life. He, that's what he valued playing soccer. He uh, was very good at it. He made a lot of money at it. And um, uh, but he went to Spain with his family and to he was with his three-year-old son. His son uh, walked out in front of a car. He dove under the car to protect his son. Uh, pushed him out of the way and he was run over and paralyzed. Where I met him later at rehab. 
And if he had come in saying, um, what I value in life is soccer, this would be a low level content value. And if, if that were true, if you worked in rehabilitation, you know if, if this man does not leave that, that fusion, if it's soccer that's gonna make me happy in life, well then he's got a very bad prognosis because that's not gonna happen. But by going up in the hierarchy, um, looking at what is it about soccer that you, what is it that's so valuable about it? Oh, well it's getting out of the fresh air and playing with other, other guys and feeling strong and being competitive. Well then we're much higher up. And then there's many possibilities. So if we're seeing the, the particular example as an exemplar of a higher function in this hierarchy. Okay, so this idea then of hierarchical relations and hierarchical relations responding, very, very important idea then um, in terms of values. And we can think of then the, the top of the hierarchy as well, the things like, for example, family life. These are, these are the motivated augmentals then that actually make doing some of these other things more reinforcing. So there's a transformation functions through the hierarchical network. So, as I've said, nodes higher in the hierarchy justify activity at lower level nodes. Translating that into more technical lang language, there's a transformation of the functions, basically, of nodes lower down in the hierarchy. Um, lower level nodes tend to be called goals. Nodes, uh, nodes at the, the, the top of the hierarchy can't be justified by higher nodes. These are values. Okay, so returning then to our definition of values, and maybe trying to, to kind of parse that apart, or look, look at that. So we said again, kind of going back, that we talked about values being freely chosen, verbally constructed consequences of ongoing dynamic, evolving patterns of activity to establish predominant reinforcers for that activity that are intrinsic in engagement in the values behavioral pattern. Um, so let's just look at this from an RT behavior analytic perspective and try and kind of pull it apart. Um, now this <laughs> yeah, we're getting rid of freedom. <laughs> I never liked it anyway. Well, we're behavior analysts. We don't, we don't like that. Um, now, okay, so yeah, again, there is the idea, but actually there is this kind of idea sometimes that you know, maybe behavioral psychology can be quite deterministic or seems so, but that's not actually the case. Um, and in fact, you know, this, in this kind of behavioral contextualistic approach, that's, that's not the case. For Skinner, um, freedom is mainly indicated when people are free from reverse control. That's kind of what, what is meant by this. So it's, it's not a kind of deterministic in, 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 in a sense. It's just, but that is, you know, that really is what Skinner meant by freedom as well. In, in, from a behavioral scientific perspective, he meant when people are free from aversive control. Um, freedom was more, more kind of indicated when somebody was kind of uh, in pursuit of things like reinforcers. So there's a kind of an element of that in the definition. Um, verbally constructed consequences. This is simply the idea that we can describe our values verbally. Okay, so, so values are freely chosen, verbally constructed consequences. We think about, we have ideas about, um, we have a relational network around our values. What's important to us is not just a kind of a word, it's the whole network of relations, family life, that's important to me. Well, that's verbally constructed, if you like, that there's, you know, there are a lot of ideas and concepts around that, a lot of relations around that. Um, I mean, again, so as an example, think of your values. Choose one of your values. Uh, you know, again, you probably could do that maybe with a, with a name or very briefly, but then you can kind of expand on that. You can describe it to yourself. 
Um, and your description, your kind of, as you kind of think about all the things that matter to you in terms of family life, your description of your value is a verbal one. Um, and the verbally, that verbally described value motivates you. So as I say, it's not just a word or a label or a simple note. It's a whole network of relations that, that you know, what family life is. And so it is for each of our values. So values in our freely chosen, um, verbally constructed consequences. And they are consequences. We'll, kind of, we'll look at that. Uh, as well. Um, we can go back to that. So there, there are consequences um, of our activity. So freely, uh, freely chosen, uh, verbally constructed consequences of our, of our activity. So there's the kinds of things, as I say, family life. Um, we think about that as, a, as an idea. And when we're asked to imagine what's important to you, so you might ask the client, what's important to you about family life? And they're going to describe that. That's really, that's their verbal elaboration. Uh, that's the verbal kind of construction, if you like. Um, and it's, it's, they are consequences as well. There are things that we aim towards. That what, why, why are you uh, working so hard, basically, in your, you know, your career? Well, I'm doing it to support my family. That's really what matters to me. So there's something lower down, maybe in the hierarchy. You're doing that for your value. So it's a consequence, and it's a verbally constructed. You imagine it. A lot of it's ver very verbal. Um, we'll, we'll get to the fact that there are kind of reinforcers that you contact within that. But a lot of it is, is quite verbal. You know, you're, when you're doing your job and you're thinking about how important your family is, that's verbal. You're, you're behaving verbally with respect to that. But it is motivating you. It's a motivated augmental. So it's freely chosen, verbally constructed consequences of ongoing, um, of ongoing dynamic patterns of activity. Actually, it's OK. So ongoing uh, dynamic patterns of activity. These are patterns of activity related to values. So the consequences of ongoing dynamic patterns of activity. So what we're doing in our, in our work situation, for example, um, there, there are lots of, of things you know, said that we might do in order to achieve <coughs> our values. There are lots of things we might do for, in the service of family life, for example. You know, we, might, we might deliberately take time off, for example, uh, go on holiday. We're working hard to provide money to support our family. We want to be there with our loved ones for a certain amount of time, uh, you know, and so on. These are all patterns of activity that we're doing in the service of. So there are patterns of behavior in the service of these verbally constructed uh, values. So think about, again, about a value in your life that guides your actions. What things do you do on a day-to-day, -day, or a week-to-week, -week, or a year-to-year -year basis that are in accordance with that value? These are the patterns of activity that are in the pursuit of those values, these verbally constructed consequences. Um, which is, and again, and these verbally constructed consequences, they are, remember we said, they're motivated augmentals, basically. So they establish predominant reinforcers for that activity. They, you know, the fact that we have this verbal construction sense, that is a motivated augmental. It makes the patterns of activity and so on that we're pursuing, it makes them more reinforcing. It makes us more likely to do these things, in other words. Um, so again, your, your values motivate you to engage in certain patterns of activity. Again, think of, think of something that's really important to you. Think of how important it is to you. You know, it, th th and that you give up, say, doing other things, or that you make time for it. Um, think about that importance then motivates actual activity. That essentially is what we're talking about. We're talking about this verbal uh, uh, motivative augmental. And the reinforcers then that we're motivated to attain, so again, the end of the, the, the definition basically is that they establish predominant reinforcers for that activity that are intrinsic in engagement in the valued behavioral pattern itself. So the reinforcers that we're motivated to attain are reasonably well established and consistent. There are, it's a verbally established network. The motivative augmental, say family life, for example, is, is certainly a verbally established network with verbal functions. 
But there are very well established, consistent reinforcers connected with that that it actually describes. So family life, there are, you know, there are really uh, consistent, important, uh, very often kind of basic reinforcers there. Things like, for example, affection that are very important. So we need to be able to contact those as well. Of course, it's not completely verbal. Nobody's going to, it's, it's, it's unlikely that you're going to continue to go in the direction of purely, absolutely abstract value. You must come in contact then with these more specific uh, reinforcers, things like uh, affection, as I say. Um, so again, think about your valued activities. Think of the qualities. Think of the actual reinforcing qualities. What, what is it that draws you towards them? You know, why, do you, why do you value your family life so much? What are the qualities that really make that so reinforcing, so important to you? So think about your valued activities. Think of the qualities that make them reinforcing. So again, you know, this is, this is our, our definition, and, and hopefully be, maybe beginning to be, make a bit more sense, even though it is a mouthful. Um, and that's kind of really what the way we kind of approach this or explain this. Um, let's consider an, exa uh, an example. So again, intimacy in a relationship. Um, again, verbally constructed. Um, or the, we've just considered family life, but we could also, another example is maybe intimacy in a relationship. Think yourself maybe of some of the things we've talked about here. So we've talked about the whole idea of verbally constructed consequences. Um, so again, when we think about intimacy, what's important to, to us, uh, you know, what's important when you say intimacy, say an intimate relationship? Um, that's verbally constructed. You can describe it. What, you know, describe what you mean. What do you mean by intimacy in a relationship? Um, so it can be, it's verbally constructed. Um, it's a consequence. It's something that we, we, we're going after, we want to achieve. Um, it's an evolving, of, of ongoing dynamic, evolving patterns of, of activity. So we do things to try to uh, achieve that. There are certain behaviors we engage in with that in mind, with that trying to, to gain intimacy. Um, and, and those verbally constructed consequences, the, that idea of an intimate relationship, uh, establishes predominant reinforcers for our, for our activity then. It, it makes doing the kind of things that might you know, achieve intimacy in a relationship that much more likely. So for example, if you're not in a relationship, maybe trying to you know, date somebody to try to uh, you know, or date a number of people to try to uh, get into a relationship that makes sense in which you might actually achieve intimacy. So these are kind of a, a, a dynamic evolving patterns of activity that are establishing, so we're doing those things, they are establishing these activities as reinforcing. Um, and, and these things, these reinforcers then, there are certain reinforcers as part of an intimate relationship, maybe affection again, that are intrinsic in engagement in the value behavior pattern itself. So those things are kind of consistent. They're, they're sustainable, they're consistent. Things like affection, maybe, that can be ongoing, um, that are very important and actually lend this power, this kind of motivational power to uh, this uh, kind of particular value. So this then brings us on to, again, the idea then of intrinsic reinforcement. I've kind of mentioned this term and, and kind of just maybe look at that, because that, again, is an important aspect of, of valuing that there's kind of sustainable kind of reinforcers. Um, reinforcement comes from the, it, it basically means that reinforcement comes from the activity in which we are engaging rather than some outside source. So in other words, when we're engaging in our valued activities, not because somebody else is paying us or somebody else is telling us we're doing a good job, it's because we are, we've chosen that, we're doing that, basically, and that's what's important to us. So intrinsic reinforcement is kind of something that we, we talk about, we highlight. Um, Function versus form is important, again, as well. So a child might, you know, so why you're doing an activity? Well, again, it's not necessarily exactly the form of the activity, it's the function, it's why you're doing it. So 
So again, a child might read, for example, um, to please her parents or pass an exam, which is kind of more extrinsic. Um, she might read for her own sake. She might just enjoy just the, the, the you know, the enjoy, you might get enjoyment out of reading for its own sake. So again, that's more of an intrinsic function. And we'd say maybe that's more associated with what we mean by values, that we're, we're enjoying them for their own sake rather than some outside kind of force telling us what's important or, you know, as I say, payment or other things might motivate us. So this seems an important aspect of valued living. Um, activities using primary reinforcement, then, might, they might classically be categorized as intrinsically reinforcing. So very often we talk about kind of things like biological reinforcers. Um, but, and that's true, you know, there are aspects, for example, of an, of an intimate relationship um, that, are, that are reinforcing, um, again, affection or sex, for example, that are, that are very reinforcing. But as a verbal species, it's not just those biological reinforcers, even though they are important. There are many other activities that are, again, through transformation functions, either closely or not so closely associated with these very kind of primary and biological intrinsic reinforcers. So for example, again, intimacy, um, art, or, or creativity, basically. So intimacy is kind of close to the biological reinforcers. You don't have to go that far to see how it might be related. But then things like creativity are kind of quite, maybe seem a bit more abstract, and yet they are still related to these primary, more primary reinforcers. Um, I was thinking of a, a, an example. Uh, clinically, uh, we, we make a, a, a large effort to, to dif differentiate between content and form, or form and function. So for example, um, when, when we're, we're talking about what uh, Ian's thought about the intrinsic reinforcer, which we you know, talked about the value, um, so, if you think about an activity, may, you might think this right now with me. If you think about an activity where that is reinforcing for you, many people choose art or music or dancing. But if you can, you think of one right now. Just think about it um, and and try to discriminate how that feels um, when you're in this activity. Um, can you discriminate how that feels? Now, if you think of the same activity. But now you're doing it because someone's expecting you to do it. Or you're doing it to achieve something. Same activity, but now you're expected to achieve. Can you feel the difference? And this, this is what we would, would help the person right from the beginning to discriminate between this intrinsic reinforcement or, or being present in a, in a valued activity rather than the activity and then with another function of somebody's expecting or, or forcing or using coercion or I'm using coercion for it. So that this would be an extremely important um, to know like we usually use word gear one and gear two because that they need to know the difference between form and function of an activity. Okay, so, so as I said, we've got various different types of, um, of reinforcers. We, we, there, are, there are certainly those biological reinforcements in some of our activities that, you know, again, uh, even in, you know, kinesthetics or movement in terms of dancing and so on. There are other things that, as a sort of in terms of us as a verbal species, there are other activities um, maybe not necessarily so closely associated with the kind of biological um, aspects of reinforcement that, you know, are, are kind of reinforcing for us. Now, activities in this, in this category um, may come through verbal transformation of function. So again, things like creativity, 
uh, involving coherence. Uh, th these are things that might involve verbal coherence and which person might describe as enjoyable and also meaningful. So again, art is in that kind of category maybe. Um, so again, quite a, quite a bit about art that's very verbal and so on, but, but a lot of that is maybe to do with coherence, things linking up. Think about really kind of abstract art. That we find that, we might find that very enjoyable. That might be certainly a value for us. But a lot of what's reinforcing about that is comes through things like coherence um, and so on, quite verbal. So, and that's meaning, it creates meaning for us. So writing or art, for example, or, or other things like that. Okay, so what we're suggesting then is intrinsic reinforcement is important. Um, intrinsically reinforced activities play a key role in core values, basically because they're more likely to lead to long-term sustained values. Um, we can conceptualize values then in terms of a hierarchy, as I've said, with core sustainable values at the top and activities allowing access at lower points. So we've already mentioned that point. So the kind of core sustainable, that's what really, maybe that's one of the qualities, as I say, of these values at the top of the hierarchy, that, that that's the reason they're at the top of the hierarchy. They are these long-term sustainable um, values. Um, and they then justify other activities uh, at lower down the, the, the hierarchy. So again, uh, intimacy is the core, but then making money to support yourself is a goal that allows access to that. Um, and intimacy as a verbal construction kind of motivates that, those lower activities. And that's, that's healthy then. Kind of, you know, in that sense, making money in that sense is it's healthy because it's in the service of something else. It's in the service of something that we find very important. Um, so activities then allowing access to core values and intrinsic reinforcement as pinnacle are healthy uh, in general. But on the other hand, of course, you can also imagine maybe, so that's a, that's a hierarchy with something else, maybe uh, above, maybe just pure money for the sake of it, for example. Um, that's psychologically healthy, that you have this core value that, okay, you make money, but it's, it's necessary to sustain your value, and that's really why you're doing it. But we can also imagine maybe a second, less vitalizing kind of hierarchy, where you might have something like um, uh, money, for example, just purely making money for the sake of it. That's not necessarily long-term sustainable, not necessarily long-term vitalizing. Um, and that, as I say, that's at the pinnacle of our hierarchy now, and we're doing activities just purely in the service of that. And that may be more problematic. Just to talk mm -hmm. for a minute about how this might relate clinically. Um, you know, a lot of what we spend a lot of time writing about in the book, and um, we certainly can't cover everything that we want to today. We have so little time. But um, think about, you know, when you're working with clients, how tempting it could be to try to discriminate that for a client. You know, we want to help our clients live more vital lives. And, and so this is really, really where our patience and our um, compassion for our clients' experience comes in, and to help them discriminate sort of what's workable for their lives, rather than sort of coming in and saying, I think if it's making money, then make money, and how is that going to be vital for you? Actually helping the client become sort of functional analyzers of their own behavior so that they can watch and track through mindfulness processes, through awareness of their experiences as they engage in those activities, really closely contacting those reinforcers, whatever they might be, to watch for what is more vital. And I know we keep using this word vital, it's kind of non-technical, but it is the sense that there's a meaning or a purpose. Um, because if you watch, a lot of times people will be making money and really enjoying the fruits of that. I get to buy this outfit, I get to go travel. But when you uncover that, sometimes there might be things inside there that are intrinsically reinforcing. So there's a balance of, of not wanting to sort of determine for a client what is sort of, sort of intrinsically reinforcing versus 
and just sort of allowing them to kind of explore. If you're really tracking what's going on here, what's vital, what's meaningful, and if you could choose, what would you choose to, to be about? How would you choose to spend your time? So it's more like that. Hmm. Yeah, yeah, that, that's a that's a good point. Again, this is this is an issue not necessarily set in stone. It's a, I suppose from a scientific perspective, we say kind of it's an empirical issue as to what people really find. Uh, valuing that they, to some extent, that they themselves can contact and try to get them in contact with what is actually vital. Um, so really, as I say, it's not necessarily that thou shalt not do this, that's not really a value. It's more, as I say, you know, but to be aware of these issues, that sometimes it can happen that at the core of the, the so-called core of the, the, the hierarchy, basically, is something that isn't really vitalizing that the person's actually chasing. And to be able to maybe allow them to discriminate that. Um, Okay, it can sometimes that, you know, and that kind of, where you've got something at the core, maybe, or the pinnacle that's not really ultimately vitalizing, that they claim is a value, maybe that might be called sometimes fusion with outcome. Um, where there's excessive focus on extrinsically reinforced activities, for example, such as making money or gaining fame or status, for example, which, and again, as I say, this is not to say, this is, this is, a, this is a real value, this is, this is not a real value, you don't really want to bother with that. It's more that you want to allow somebody to actually come in contact with what is important to them. And, and it, the, with the possibility that really wants kind of more long-term, sustainable, vital, vitalizing values. So things like this, again, making money or status may take one, you know, sometimes what can happen is they can take one away from uh, intrinsic reinforcers. And they, you know, and they themselves are not necessarily that sustainable or long-term, and maybe ultimately unsatisfying. But it, again, as I say, it is a case of allowing the client to, to come in contact with that. It's not, this is right, this is wrong. Uh, so, and again, this is also comes back to the whole idea of the importance of form versus function. Um, making money, for example, can be, you know, it's not making money itself, obviously. Uh, making money, the lower down node, for example, uh, as one example, uh, the hierarchy, can be a very healthy thing, because again, it's in the service of something else. Um, and I, I know I'm coming, kind of, I keep coming back to money or whatever, maybe that's the economics, the credit crunch or something, but, but uh, no, it's this idea, though, that again, that, as an idea of something that's not necessarily, not always vitalizing or kind of satisfying ultimately. So making money, for example, can be in service of sustainable reinforcement, um, in which case it's healthy, but if somebody's kind of doing it as an end in itself, then it's unhealthy. Um, okay, and the, the whole idea of intrinsic reinforcement, then we, kind of, we can move on then to a, kind of another theme, which is to do with what maintains values? Um, Before we do that, though, um, I'm, I'm sensing we want to kind of, we really do want to dance between sort of RFT and, and application here today. And so not to cut Ian off here, because we can come back to this. Um, there's so much here we wanted to share with you about how RFT can apply directly with what we do. But we also want to give you a chance to really get some of the really applied angles of how to really get in there and do some values work. And then we'll talk about how to maintain value when we get to some of the other pieces so we're going to skip around a little bit so that we can get you a little bit more active. And it's late in the afternoon. We get sort of tired. And okay. Any in talking? Mm -hmm. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> uh, if you've been into some of my workshops, you've seen that, um, that we use the lifeline pretty much uh, uh, in, in most of our clinical research. And uh, this the lifeline is actually a functional analysis on the floor. And we want to do this, we want to, rather using uh, making a functional analysis as an intellectual exercise, we want it as an experiential exercise. So 
it feels like to me that when people, you know, come into a room and they just sit now, I have enough talk about me and the story about me, and it's very, very rehearsed, and we can all hear it's rehearsed, and it's probably not very helpful for any either of us. And so what we, I'd like to show you with two is this is some, would be the, uh, how we're going to conceptualize, uh, and these are, uh, the actual lifeline itself, we usually use some kind of a scarf or something on the floor, and uh, I could maybe show, show it instead of talk about it. Okay, so here we have a patient, Eric, with, who has chronic pain. And um, uh, I don't know if he's, could I have a scarf? Uh, yeah, she's, she's, she knows. Give me a we use for different applications, but this particular application for chronic pain, uh, we would be asking, uh, what we're looking for is functional classes of behavior, um, especially experiential avoidance. So um, we are, what I'm going to do is I'm going to establish first the, the um, value. Now this is, this is actually, a mis I mean, it's, we do it for educational reasons, but actually it's a mistake to put the value on the end because the value is not in the future. The value is immediate. And so uh, I think uh, my one of my students just left. Actually, you could put so you could actually put it the whole way. You could put stars the whole way. Because but we're only doing it just just uh, uh, for makes it a little easier. We put the value on the end. It also it's also it is it's also um, an organization of that is hopefully for the client piece to to understand uh, the whole process of of the work. Yeah. So, um, so you might think this is a little strange, but we often um, take away the chair so that there actually is no possibility of sitting in the room, so that um, the, the whole session takes place on the floor. So Eric, welcome here. Thank you very much. Um, I thought we'd take a look at your life. And um, I know that you came here to get rid of your pain, but I'm curious about the Eric beyond the pain. So I asked you before you came, if you would um, think about some losses in your life. So yeah. wh what are those losses about? Well, I've been, I've been thinking about that a lot. And I, the first thing that popped up to my mind was when my, I was about 10 years old when my, uh, my mom and my dad divorced and I did, and my dad left. I remember he was standing up in the hall with his bags, just gonna go. He said, well, I'll, I'll be just gonna be for a while, but I kind of knew um, that it was not coming back. And I haven't had a lot of contact with it since then. So that's one thing. He was free. I mean, turns out. So what he's telling me here, you see, he, and this is what, whenever a person talks about suffering, there's a value. So the, the suffering is the backside is a value. So he's telling me that he, that about his relationship with his dad here. So what I, I'm just listening for generally, now you could think of it in the terms of the values compass. This would be a branch in the value compass. So I'm taking out the branch, and I, what he's talking to me, almost what everybody says, is uh, that losses are about relationships. So I'm going to put the value of relationships here. So before I listen to more uh, this, I'm going to put down the value of relationships. And what we often do is we need values in terms of behavior. They are verbs, just like reality is a verb. Uh, 
values have to be a verb. It's a behavior, it's not an outcome, it's not a anything that can be reached, it's not a noun. So we need, I need to help them maybe redo things. When people start talking about goals and studies, we have to redo them into verbs. So, Eric, I'm just getting back to So, Eric, you're talking about relationships here. How do you yeah. want to be in a relationship? If you could, if you can think maybe on a, when relationships have been working for you in a way, how have you been when you are in a relationship that works? Uh, oh, uh, when it, it has worked, well, it doesn't work often. It has, has Here been we hard. have the value right next to the butts. That's been hard. Uh, doesn't work with my wife now either. I think when when it has been good, we have we've been able to be spontaneous and, and and talking about things and being open. And You're talking about you having having fun, yeah. So open. Yeah, spontaneous to be able to be have fun and be spontaneous. I think, but. That is not what, how it is right now. I mean, open and she's probably gonna leave me too. It's very open. Yeah, it is. Be spontaneous. Mm. Being honest, maybe. But that's not not how it is right now. Could I say loving? Now one of the things that we do is that we, um, it's important that what we, we, we turn this this way. So how are you towards yourself? So being, would you say that being open, honest, and loving towards yourself, would that be something you would strive for? If I could be that, that would be very good, but uh, that's not what it is right now, but I, absolutely, I would love that. We're thinking that the roots of compassion have to do with loving kindness towards yourself. And that's where we're going to start. We're going to talk his, his way of relating to himself is, is making, because that's the way we can find a discrepancy. We, we can, I'm not going to blend, um, mix in other people here. Okay, so. So you, you mentioned that your father left. Yeah. So the loss actually was that your father left. How old were you then? I was 10. 10? 10. Into, step into this boy, this 10-year-old boy's life, and see if you can remember how that felt, how you were with your dad. When, when he left, do you mean? Well, before he left, when you were open and honest and with your own feelings, can you remember that? Yeah. Just, I remember we were out at the yard playing soccer just, yeah, just being, just being there. Mm -hmm. Being open and honest yeah. and loving. Okay, so then the 10-year-old boy gets to know that he, his dad is gone. Yeah. Can you feel how that feels? Yeah, it was. You don't need to tell me about it, just can you, can you feel it? Yeah, 
asked me to do that just popped up in my mind, my mind immediately and the, the picture of him leaving and that I kind of knew that he was not coming back. Yeah, he's coming back. He was, how would you say, he was... How, how, it, how it felt for me when he was leaving? Just a word. Yeah. Sad. And also, that it was my fault in a sense. For some reason, I know that that's not it. So we're on the lifeline here. We're, uh, parents get divorced, sadness. We're on the line. So this is life. This is the shit that happens in life. This is nothing strange. Okay, so the, now we're, then we're looking at the operating condition. So what did this 10-year-old boy, what did he do about those feelings? We, I separated the event from the, from the uh, feeling because it's the event he thinks is, is causing his problems, but actually it's not. Yeah, I, I froze when he was, he was uh, the first thing that happened was that I froze. I was just, just standing there staring at him uh, when he was leaving. And then I, I ran off to my, to the backyard and the, up and the, had a, I don't know what that, a tree house that I ran up to. And I, I, I cried for like an hour or so, I remember that. So you didn't show your feelings? Hmm. So. This ten-year-old boy, open, honest, and and loving towards himself when he shut down those feelings. When I ran off, I don't know. Now could I? Could I? I took him off the line because he is now off uh, from his valid direction. Could I? Could I call this? Uh, out here, what you're doing out here, could I call it avoidance, which will avoid your feelings? <coughs> yeah, because what, what, what I wanted to say, when I think back, back about it, what I wanted to say to my, <coughs> my dad was that, no, that he's, I didn't want him to leave, but instead I just froze and ran off. So, yeah. So, Eric has turned his back on his value direction. So, nobody but he knows that this if we were to look at topography or form of behavior, this could have been on the line. But now he's told me that he did this in the service that he did not want to feel that feeling. So this was the cost, was that he uh, left, related to himself in a way that shut down. And then we'll use the RFT, we'll use a, what type of thoughts we put it on, what type of thoughts, what, what conclusion did you draw from this, what kind of rules were made about this, and he'll say, well, if things get tough, I can shut down. And he also knows that people who love me can leave me. So eventually we, we bring him back. I won't, we won't do the rest of this, but, okay. but, but um, we're going to look at, at, at the next one and the next one. And then we push this on a larger piece of paper up to the next one. So he's bringing with him these uh, functional categories, this learning history, plus the thoughts that he learned. And so I just want to bring you back here. And what, so he would have thoughts on him here, and he would have be bringing the, the functional categories here. And we'll demonstrate this by, by um, the operant conditioning by a feeling of a habit. So it would be pulling him. So when he was not mindful, and when things happen, he will have this pull, which feeling exactly like a habit feels.
both that, and we can work with diffusion here. But the idea is that how can we develop psychological flexibility so when events come and feelings come, which they will, of course, can I be flexible so they don't end out, out here in functional, this would be the creative helplessness, uh, uh, so I don't end out out there, but can, can stay and absorb new, new events, always keeping in mind, and we often use the tree metaphor, that the being, our roots would be in these values, and this is where our roots are. And sometimes a branch on the tree can look like a tree trunk, but it isn't. There are no roots there. And it can look very tempting out here, <laughs> the branches. But my home is in my values. And this is where I have to return to, to reinforce myself. Could I add, uh, add one thing? What we also could do is to, uh, when the client comes back, take up a situation that is hard, that is happening right now. Also, take a new situation, I think you touched upon it, but bring up situations and then immediately stand up and, and do an analysis of that, because this can become like a metaphor for it that you can add on to and bring up, okay, so what's that? What happened when you were in that, that situation that was hard right now, doing the homework assignment or uh, taking a value step, what happened? Well, all the, those emotions and thoughts and feelings, they, they kind of popped up, okay, and what did you do? Were you able to be with that? making room for that, making space for that, and, and, and be the person you wanted, or what happened, or were you kind of pushed off by those experiences? And then, okay, so what would be, can also be like an ex, uh, exposure thing to do, or, and then a metaphor for it. It's also for easy to use, to use this, you know, having the thought like this or having thought like this, and which one helps you watch your way. So using this metaphor, you can play with all kinds of different ways, rather than doing it as an intellectual exercise. And what's, what's really neat about this exercise, if you can notice, the whole, sorry, did someone have a question? Okay. Um, the, whole, the whole model, I know we didn't go through all of the processes and the model, but I'm assuming on Friday afternoon that those of you who are new to it have at least some sense of what the processes and the model are at this point. Um, and if you don't, we'll, we'll go over them later. Uh, but if you notice, all of the parts of both the, the, the therapeutic process, including creative hopelessness, some other things, as well as acceptance, diffusion, mindfulness, self, and values, and committed action, were all can all be part of this. And so, so what's nice about this is we're getting a sense that maybe values work can be something that can both direct therapy, but be part of every session from the moment a client walks in the door. Um, a couple of things, too, I want to comment on is, you know, I'm sure a lot of us had some thoughts if we've tried to do values work with our clients, but, you know, getting a client to generate some of these things, like open, honest, and loving, can be very difficult. And so there's a lot of flexibility, I think, with the way that you can encourage clients to sort of have a direction. Um, and words are nice, but they don't have to be words. It could be some other kind of sense of, of purpose or meaning or wanting to have a different kind of life that can be useful in the beginning, that can transform later into something a little bit more um, defined or, or closer to higher up in the hierarchy. So rather than getting stuck anywhere in these interventions, being really flexible with just getting sort of a function of what we want to have happen here. Um, yeah, I think teaching, I mean, uh, working in other countries, we actually do not n need to know what those words are. I don't need to know what the event is. I don't need to know what the feeling is. But I need to know how they are relating to it. 
And this is what is, can really be helpful, make, make it much easier if you don't need to know the words. You know, walking in Africa, these places we worked at, it, we, and assuming that we all have the same values, we're, all, we're identically the same, and we all have the same fears, makes it much easier to work. Not needing to know if it's that word or that word, but just the general, how are you relating to discomfort and what are you going towards? Did anyone have any questions or comments? Okay. I'm noticing we have about 10 minutes before we have our official break. And rather than try to start another exercise before then, um, I'm not sure the coffee people will be quite ready for us, but it seems like a natural breaking point. Are people okay with it? Yeah. 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 If we have a little spare time, perhaps I could just ask, yeah. um, with regard to watching you teach your, your clients on the uh, you know, founding direction mm -hmm. and, and how, how you worked with that, um, I did wonder about uh, pretty much saying, well, I, I, you, don't, I, you don't need to tell me. It's more like, how did you relate to that? And I, mm -hmm. I just wondered what impact that
to functionally validate the client's experience of walking off with the line. You know, you can really talk about, so how, okay, so let's just sit with what that was like for a minute. Oh, wow, so that was really hard for you, right? Especially, like, now that we're seeing that there is this, this other direction that was a possibility to go in. I'm not blaming you here, right? You can, you can even say, I'm not blaming you. Maybe your mind might be blaming you for that. Let's just notice that as well. But the, we can just sort of be here, because this is what happens. This is what you know how to do. And there's a reason for it, right? It makes sense in the moment. It makes sense. We all do things that make sense. It's just maybe they are costly. They're functional. Yeah. But the, it, when when she is in this direction, she is choosing this direction. And you know, this is very similar to mo motivational interviewing, where if you if you say you're choosing this, but you're going in this direction, this is what you're choosing. So this is fine. I mean, we can go around here. This is what you want to do in therapy. I get paid anyway. I can go around <laughs> here with you if you want to do this. Yeah. You choose. But it's it's. It's knowing that it's a, there's a difference here between these two. Because mm -hmm. we could take that out and we could put avoidance here instead. That's the value. Is that what you want to do? You know, the num Beth says that the number one reason, the number one avoidance is talking about a problem. <laughs> okay. I think that's a good time to break. And we'll come back in about 15. Awesome. So, how, how are we?